Hello, everyone. This is Meredith with a Y, and I am your host, Meredith Willis. Today, we are going to go deep, changing lives, and I am giving you the keys to the castle. Welcome back to Meredith with a Y. I am your host, Meredith Willits, and I'm super excited today to have a beautiful, amazing, intelligent guest, Milagos Brown. She is a veteran of political campaigns, strategic fundraising, and startups. She founded After November as a direct result of over a decade of insight into politics. And her mission is to level the playing field of political access through intentional civic engagement, information sharing, and community building. That was a mouthful. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. I know. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, am I sure I should be talking to this? You know? I'm like, and I also have a wild three-year-old running around my house and a baby growing on my belly and a dog who's asleep over here. So, you know, I'm also very much a normal human being. <laughs> all right. Well, I, isn't that the mom, the woman, you know, we're, we're doing it all. So thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited about our conversation today. And I'm so blessed that you reached out and wanted to share your story and what you're doing with After November. And that was just founded recently, 2019? No, actually just last August. And okay. found when you're an entrepreneur, as you have your own projects, right? Mm -hmm. You use like very like strong language when you talk about the evolution of really just an idea. So founded perhaps oversteps what it was, but I'm sure as many of us just watching the year that was 2020, there's a lot of yelling at the television, perhaps, or maybe screaming into a pillow. I don't know. There was a lot of emotions, no matter where you fall in the political spectrum. It was a very overwhelming year. I think that after November was really an outlet for me. It was really just a place where I could share information, kind of talk into the world that is social media and see if I could connect with like-minded people and a way for me to be political without necessarily talking to people who just care about politics. Like yeah. I'm very much, you know, I, I worked in politics for a long time, but you know, I'm very much at a stage in my life where, you know, my family is really important to me. We're applying for preschools, you know, the dynamics of our life are not consumed with CBS Sunday morning and, meet the press and what's happening on, you know, any of the morning pundit shows. So my life has become a lot softer and a lot more kind of normal in the ebbs and flows of what it is to be an American mom. And I wanted to connect in a way that felt intelligent and felt like it was purposeful and perhaps shared some insight from my time working in politics into the space. And so I launched the Instagram handle tried to share content and it's a small, but like really thoughtful and engaged community. And I, I was, you know, very fortunate to find women who are engaging in what I was sharing and we've had some really meaningful conversations and it's evolved into like, how does this really become something that can expand and that more people can participate in these conversations? Yeah. Cause I'm assuming when you graduated from college and you went to Duke yeah. And you get into the political landscape. This is your job. Your idea of what politics meant to you then and how it's changed to being what politics means to you now as a mom and as a wife and as a mother to children of color. Yeah. And now it's taking on a different it goes from power to equity, power to equality. Sure. It totally shifts from being yeah. a part of to being involved in because you want to see actual change, not just being part of the process. Absolutely. I mean, you defined it perfectly. I think, you know, when you're fresh out of school, you have lots of different things that compel your interest and involvement. You know, I, I wanted to do meaningful work. Politics was something that I've long been interested in. I come from a super political family in that my mom was an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. She grew up under a dictator. She always really valued democracy. And my stepfather worked for the government. So, you know, our household was definitely one that like, we talked about history. We talked about the evolution of democracy. 
both of my, my stepfather, who was white and from Indiana, he has passed away. My mother is still alive, but both of them are very conservative politically. So, you know, I've evolved in my political views, but I can appreciate the fact that like, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, generally, if you're passionate, it's because you have a, a real reason. And that generally means like you care about your family, you care about their well-being, you care about educational resources, you care about healthcare resources. So, yeah, when I got involved in politics, I was taking the seeds of that and building the building blocks of a career. But I learned a lot about like the mechanisms that run our political system. And I was very naive to what that was. So yeah, a, a growth process. And now that I've had some time away from it, I can take an eye that is not just solely critical, but that wants things to get better. That's not just like, this is bad, you're bad. Let's label each other in these really triggering ways. But like, how can we have a conversation to move things forward, right? So yeah, and just to like, so everyone is all on the same page and understanding, because I, I think it's so important to know who's speaking. So not only do you have this political background, as you stated, your mom's from the Dominican Republic, your stepdad who you lived in that household was white and your dad is black. Your husband is black. And so you have a really interesting perspective as, as I'm finding with a lot of the conversations that I'm having over this series is when you look up from the dinner table, what is your reality? And so your reality really is a spectrum of political ideals and backgrounds. I mean, like you said, your mother was raised under a dictatorship and color of their skin, which, which creates your entire reality and uh, the way the world meets you in the world, you know, like that's just where we're at. And when I'm looking at, at all that you're bringing and what you're talking about. And I think that we, we look at politics as this thing on television that other people do. Mm-hmm. It's this thing over there. And when I look at politics, I look at it as the active expression of your ethics, morals, and values. Sure. Okay. I think that it's truly a part of you as a person and how it that part of you plays itself out. Do you value school? Do you value freedom of speech? Do you value putting money into streets or warfare or whatever, you know, say, so it's, it's in its extension of the way that your mind is interacting with the world around you and your environment, both local and federal. Right. So when, when you and I are talking about this, which just, just so you guys can go there, it's Instagram is at underscore after November. She has the underscore first to make sure and put that in there. And when I'm looking at all that you've done and now how that's transitioning into, okay, I was there and I saw that there's insiders right, and there's outsiders Mm -hmm. and how you get to be an insider and who's the outsider and why. Yeah. And so when you're looking at that and then that kind of births this, holy crap, we need to get more outsiders on the inside to have a more equitable government for all people. What is that looking like to you? Yeah. I mean, a a lot of it was shaped. So when I worked in politics, I was a political fundraiser on the Senate side. So it's a really small community of people. And the Senate is just a hundred members as opposed to the house, which is, you know, 400 plus members and senators terms are longer. It's six years in office. So it, it tends to be in some ways when you win your Senate seat, it's a bit of a lifetime appointment. People do it at kind of a mature stage in their lives. And if they don't stay in the Senate, their next kind of natural job is working in a cabinet as a presidential appointee or staying, you know, in the federal government in some sort of way. So on the House side, you know, congressmen and women cycle through their, their jobs quickly There's laws around how quickly they can transition to be lobbyists, but they can monetize their life in a different way. Senators tend to be pretty static and they tend to stay in in this universe for a while. So when I was doing fundraising, a couple of things really stood out to me. One, the donors were not people of color, which was something that when I was young, it didn't seem uncomfortable to bring these things to the table. (laughs) Like I was young, ambitious, thought it was a safe space to say like, oh, hey, this seems like a pain point. (laughs) Perhaps we should 
diversify the landscape of who we're interacting with. And the other piece of being in fundraising specifically is that fundraisers are employable, which is one of the reasons that I decided to go into fundraising because a fundraising cycle never ends. So like when people think of the of political elections, there's a lot of focus on around every four years, there's a presidential election, right? But there's always a, a Senate cycle. Like there's the Senate is broken up into thirds. So every two years, a third of them are up for election. Mm-hmm. And as a result, there's money that always needs to be raised. The point of this is that once all this money is spent on getting people to turn out to vote, who has the who captures the attention of the members who are in office? It's the donors because they're still calling donors asking for money because perpetually there's always an election cycle happening. And so while, you know, every at the toward of the, towards the tail end of the election, voters are actively participants in the process, like election night, your member is calling donors saying, thank you for getting me across the finish line. So that being said, I just saw like who consistently stays in the process. It's donors. It's, it's the money. Like there's a lot of money that consistently stays in the process. And if we can open it up a little bit, right. If we can shed light on like, it doesn't have to be that way. We can educate ourselves to be more consistent participants beyond voting. We can take all of this voter enthusiasm that is across the aisle and attempt to engage that in a way that's sustaining, that doesn't just end on election day and then show up you know, two years later when you're voting for the next thing, but that is educated as to how to be continually a part of the process so that the ears that the, the members or the voices that the members are hearing isn't just a very narrow set of people. And I think we saw that huge with Stacey Abrams and what she was able to, I mean, move mountains literally in Georgia over in the quiet time. Like we're like, you're saying it's like, there's a loud politics and then there's the quiet politics. And she was super loud during the quiet time. And we were able to see, what that actually does to voter turnout, to swinging elections and to changing the landscape of politics on levels that we've never seen before in this country as far as red and blue states and how nice it would be to not have that conversation. But it is where we're still at as far as our, you know, two party politics. But so what you're saying is make politics a part of your daily, weekly experience and understand that my husband, so my husband's in sports and he sells tickets. And so, uh, you know, there's the season and then there's the off season. Right. And everyone says, well, what do you do in the off season? Like, do you have to work? And he's like, yeah, that's when I sell the tickets for the season. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so I think we need to start looking at the off season of politics as yes. when we're selling the tickets. That's the yes. grind time. That's where he's downstairs right now on phone calls, figuring out how opening day is going to play out and yes. the rest of the season. How are we going to get butts in seats yes. the whole season? Yes, it's such a good analogy. I have often compared politics <laughs> to sports as well. Because of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> Just in that, like, there's so much, you know, the politics and then political campaigns are kind of, to me, they're two separate entities, right? Like politics in some ways, I feel like is the functioning of our government and like relationships and this relationship that you should have with the people that you elect. Political campaigns are their own kind of beast. And the two become really commingled because as someone who's a lay person, why would you understand the difference of the two? You think the two kind of are symbiotic, but they really are kind of two different beasts, like how the government is run and how messages are conveyed to turn out votes are totally different strategic animals. And so I liken to like sports, you know, there's all this strategy and work that goes into winning, right? And so we don't see all the practices, you know, we don't see all that, but we see the game and we see the players playing the game and we see the coaches directing and it's transparent in that way. The The actual playing of the game is super transparent and there's an outcome, right? Politics elections have outcomes. There's a win, there's people who win and there's people who lose. And what you don't see is how, who's coaching, who's calling the shots, what are the players, right? So what you receive are talking points, you receive media messaging, you receive news stories, and there's a level of believing that that's transparent. 
but there are, there are coaches, there are strategists, there are people who are trying Analytics to win. Analytics and, yes. oh my gosh, yes, uh, so, so much. The, so the sports, you know, is, you know, not fully transparent, right? There's a business of, of sports too that we don't see. But I think I, if you compare it to game day, right? Like on sports, it's really transparent. You see what happens on game day. On politics, you never really see what's happening. Like you never see all the plays being called and all this stuff. So I think pulling that veil back so that we can be intelligently discerned what we want to take in, what information we want to receive, what if we want to be triggered by a particular message or idea, excuse me. Yeah. So pulling that veil back, I think, would just soften how politics is presented to us and allow us to sustain engagement because as it is now, it's exhausting. You know, it's really just an exhausting process. Yeah, it's a lot. And I mean, I was in it. 24 hours a day, my two older kids are like, mom, you've got to change the channel. Cause I was swimming in it. I was doing laps in it. It was morning, noon and night. I was taking, I mean, it was, and I woke up and I'm like, you are taking on all of this energy Mm -hmm. through the television. You're putting all of these problems on your lap with absolutely nowhere to put that energy. You can't, I can't transfer it into action. You can only transfer it into anger or on social media or as in like losing your mind. And, you know, you know, everyone's dying to change their mind on social media. Like they're just dying to listen to what you have to say so that they can change their mind. Um, So this really isn't about changing people's mind. It's about people engaging in a way that's productive, because right now, I think 99% of Americans think that engaging in politics is watching CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, or all the other, you know, channels and sharing on social media. That is literally American politics today. And then having all of that information and to be a proper citizen, not sharing any, you know what I mean? So like, Where's the line of involvement versus false involvement? Because absorption and sharing and fighting with people, it gives you a a false sense of, you know, the Monday morning quarterback, because you're really not affecting change by sharing either information or misinformation or absorbing facts and then not applying any of this anywhere. It's just this bubble of nothing that we think we're involved in politics, which we aren't. Yes. So much truth. Right. And I don't certainly don't fault anyone for receiving it and then feeling a range of emotions, either wanting to like crawl into a turtle shell and shut it all off or feeling outrage or, you know, any range of emotion. I mean, there's no fault in that response, but at the end of the day, as you pointed out, like what does that actually do, right? To move the needle. <laughs> Except for make you crazy and then you can't make dinner because you're so fired up or you're reposting something on Facebook and you're doing hold on to your kids because you you think yeah. you're involved somehow by doing this. And now you're a crazy person. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy <laughs> figuring all of this out. And I, I don't have the solution. You know, I just have the, the empathy for feeling all of these things, right? I, I have felt all of the emotions and- <laughs> And it, and it also is heartbreaking to know that given my lens that I know that like, these are talking points, these are message points that are being driven with the intention to cause us to feel this way. Because the reaction then is you will go vote, right? The whole point is to like get people to vote or get them to, to organize and vote. So it's a very, like it's meant to drive these emotional reactions. And, and I'm not talking about things that just merit emotion, like the death of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, like, you know, these things merit emotional reactions. So I would never say like, step away from the emotions of these things, but being someone who has worked in the strategic part of it, sometimes I'm able to kind of like take a step back and be like, what? why is the news reporting in this way? Like, what is the, like, what is the intention for me receiving this? Mm, Okay. As opposed to just like, I received this headline and I feel this way. I kind of always take a step back. Like, why are they telling the story this way? Like who has pitched them the story this way? Yeah. Is there something else that's not being told because we're meant to have our attention directed in this way? Oh, so yeah, I think, you know, yeah, I think, uh, and two, there's, there's political topics 
which is, you know, the politics of this, that and the other. I think that the George Floyd and the Breonna Taylor is political because it's going to change, hopefully, the way we govern and police and handle all these topics in a wide range of federal, local, state ways. So that to me is get, please get angry. I mean, when George Floyd happened, I think I cried in my girlfriend's backyard for three straight hours. I know she thought I had lost my mind. I know she did. So to me, that is, okay, now what do we do with Right. What we just saw and the emotion. I mean, I can't with the we I mean if, with the mom. I mean, that just right. I was done. And yeah. which I'm sure is what caused this entire series literally was was him asking for his mom. So there's that. But I hate to politicize that because I think it cheapens it. It's sure. a catalyst, yeah. but it's right. not political. It's a catalyst for a change in the way we politic. But that's a human rights issue. That's yeah. a human issue. That's yeah. a what the hell are we doing issue? And why are we allowing it issue? Which then goes back to who's in charge? Who has the equity in politics? Who has the equity in government? And why is it that we are so afraid as white people to give equity, to share equity, to, to in- invite other people into the landscape so that when we look at the Senate and the government, it's not a bunch of white faces looking back at us, telling us as women with vaginas and dark skin and, and that how to live our life and the best way to do it. Who said that they know the best way for you and I to govern and to live our lives. And so to me, I'm looking at after November and going, because I know that one of the topics and the tenets of after November is to have a safe space for difficult topics. Yeah. And I'm in another group on Facebook and, you know, it's where my, my, my rough, tough white skin got cracked, punched and bruised and really, really opened me up to understanding that there is a whole reality out there that's not from the white perspective (laughs) and that what we've been taught and what we've learned in school and the way that things are taught is from a white perspective. And so when you have someone who is white coming into these conversations, first of all, people of color can be very like, why are you asking me that? Why can't you just Google it? Open a book. It's not my job to teach you. And people Mm -hmm. that are white go, I grew up poor. I don't have privilege. What are you talking about? So we have these two different opposing mindsets of Google it. And I'm not here to carry you through this. There's plenty of books out there on race. And, and, and then there's the white people that are like, you know, we were on food stamps. I don't understand what this white privilege is that you're talking about. It's bullshit. So, Mm -hmm. so this is where the difficult topics comes and so what from where you're sitting seeing all of these things and 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 having gone through this as, for a couple months now what's what's your best route for having these kinds of conversations that are make them productive sure i mean I, you know i don't have a solution right. for sure but i think acknowledging that i don't have a solution is probably the first part i think the second part is just having the conversations. And what I've, I've found is that one-on-one. So yeah, huge. I I had the handle and after the election, you know, I had some thoughts about how I wanted to move forward, but I I really just so believe that we can be better than these sort of very polarized, this dark place that we're in, I think as a country that I just wanted to do it really thoughtfully. And, you know, in order to build a community, you have to listen to the community. So um, I launched a series of just one-on-one conversations with people that follow and engage with the content. And it almost became a, a form of political theory, therapy. I kind of dubbed it because I'm not a therapist, but it's a lot of women who aren't political, but became engaged for one reason or another. And really hearing their journeys, hearing how the election cycle translated to them, what election day meant to them. 
their difficulties in, during COVID, folks facing unemployment, people with graduate degrees on food stamps. What, how we present ourselves is not such an easy thing, right? Like we're all more complicated and complex than labels allow, than labels can ever define us to be. You know, you are telling my family history, <laughs> like, you know, I'm a black woman, I'm a Latina woman. Those are things that you could as assume a lot of things about my personality because that's kind of how we've been programmed, right? Like, I'm gonna assume these things. I could assume things about you being, oh, she's this white lady from the Midwest, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think if we have these, if we, if we can have these one-on-one -on -one conversations, you know, maybe there are places where we're just not that alike. Right. And that's okay too. Yeah. But I think that like just the small step of having these conversations of asking the awkward questions of tripping over yourself, of not really even knowing what your point of view is. Yeah. And also respectfully giving space to people who are like, I'm not even in a place to have this conversation because there's too much that I'm carrying that even makes me a safe space to have it. So I'm, I'm not even interested. So, you know, I think that like part of my personality is to just be super empathetic with people and to try and, and respect where we're coming, where different people are coming from. Because I think in this kind of social media culture, we're told to present ourselves, like present, like as if we're constantly like a LinkedIn page or we're living an aspirational life or whatever yeah. these like terms are like, Who's doing, no one lives these things. <laughs> like, you know, some people have more money. The story of how you get to more money tends to also be really unique. Some people inherit it. Some people work, some people are self. I mean, it's all so complex. Some people have less money. Some people really enjoy their lifestyle with less. You know, it's just like, it's so nuanced. And I think if we can recognize that, like the way we participate is super nuanced and particular, and if we can open ourselves to having those conversations, then perhaps we will find we are aligned on things that we didn't expect to be aligned on. And the things that we may not be, we can at least soften the way that we educate ourselves on our differences. Yeah. And so I have work to do with myself, you know, being open to different points of view as well. I'm yeah. on my own kind of journey as an adult. So recognizing that and that my position has changed as I've grown older because I've had different experiences, giving other people the grace as well to, to kind of explore their own change journey and their position. So, yeah. And I think as humans, and I've talked about this in like my very early episodes of the podcast is as humans, we really like to put things in neat, tidy packages, even, yeah, yeah. even if that makes the package uglier. Mm -hmm. Just so that we can understand the world around us. You know, I do like grapes. I don't like apples. I do like this. I don't like that. You know, this is safe. This isn't safe. And it helps us to, as homo sapiens, it's helped us to evolve safely. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is safe. That's not safe. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that we have stressors that are coming in and we're still trying to go safe, not safe, safe, not safe with humans. Mm -hmm. And so as you and I are talking about this and as my experience, because in the group of on the Facebook group that I was in, I was one of the only white women that were having these conversations with all of these black women. And I only knew personally like two of them and the yeah. rest of the group was like, and who are you Meredith? And I'm like, I'm someone that wants to learn. And they're like, well, you know, go Google it. And I'm like, okay, but why are we having this group if I'm not allowed to talk about it? So it got real. So what we did is yeah. we did a zoom call with like seven of us. Yeah. I being the only white woman and we broke it down in a personal way and listened to each other and saw each other's faces via, except for just being typing. And mm -hmm. I think that honestly, as you and I, I don't know if we can get there in big groups. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't know if we can. I think that this is going to have to, at least in the beginning, the bridge is going to have to be very small stones to move the mountain. It's yeah. going to have to be personal. It's going to have to be, wait a minute, you're pretty much exactly like me, except for a few things. And this is stupid. Why is that? You know, why is there such a reach between you and I? What, what is it that brought us to the separation 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, taboo or over there or versus mentality. And I talk about that too. It's always this win-lose. And I think that's where white people are getting lost is that if someone else wins, then that means that we must lose, that there cannot be a win-win because that's what we've been taught. You know, second place is the first loser, you know? And so until we start to recognize that all of us bring more by all of us being here and by having these conversations that are personal, my friend, I was reading this article and I, I don't remember what it was, but it's these two gals. They do. I think it was a blog and the one gal was white and the other one was black. And she said, the first thing that I never want you to forget is that I am black. And the mm-hmm. second thing that I never want you to think about is that I'm black. And to me, I literally sat with that for like a long time to try. I mean, I read the whole thing, but I was like, you know, this is this is really poignant that this woman said to one of her very best friends to remind her that it is who I am and it's not who I am. Just like I'm white, but I'm also that's how you perceive me. But that's not all that I am. Mm-hmm. And so what I think we need to get past these conversations and, and make them much more personal and reach out and literally reach out and be in these small spaces, like the Instagram pages where we are with women who want to make the world better for ourselves and our children, because this is not a black problem. It's not a white problem. It's an everybody problem. Mm-hmm. And until we start to see this as an everybody problem we're not going to move forward. It has to be an everybody problem. And that's why I'm doing this series is because I'm seeing this as an everybody. This is a huge problem for me and my children that there's not equity, there's not diversity, and there's not inclusion. And so like your group that you saw was needed after November. Yeah. You know, and I think, and it was interesting because you were telling me that you live in DC, you know, you're in it and you're like, I live in a very progressive area. It's like the United Nations kind of where I, you know, raised my two older kids in New Jersey. It was, you know, there's everybody, every religion, every color. It's very inclusive. Like you walk down the street, but something that you said to me will stay with me forever. I have these certain things that do. And you said to me that even in the best case scenario, I'm still not safe. Yeah. I mean, you know, history is what it is, right? So my ancestors were brought here as slaves and my mom's Dominican and which shares a border with Haiti and Haiti is the one nation where slaves revolted and were able to have autonomy. The legacy of humans being cruel to each other is not new. And I studied history kind of accidentally in college. So they were like, you have a number of history credits. You should probably be a history major. So I was like, okay. (laughs) But I think that just from my study of history, it's important that often when we look at progress, that we don't think we're so far removed from the people who came before us. You know, the people who, you know, you can look and be like, oh, these, the atrocities that were committed during the Holocaust or the atrocity of slavery or, or any form of genocide, I would never be complicit in that environment or culture. But I'm pretty confident that the people who lived in those circumstances probably had a lot of the same burdens that we have today and didn't think that they would live in a, a situation where they would be witnessing such cruelty as well. So I I guess that's all to say that like the environment of slavery and the mentality that supported that as an industry and that as a result dehumanized Black people to be property, we have to be careful to to think that we're so separated from that, right? So yes, we live outside of Washington, D.C. D.C. votes 90% Democratic every election that doesn't count because their votes don't count. And as a result, the people who who feed the government are largely progressive. And our neighborhood is, you know, a lot of our neighbors have Black Lives Matter signs and race is not, I mean, hate is not tolerated here. And But, you know, as someone who is cognizant of history and lives it every day as a person of color, 
Like, I think I, we had talked about how normal it is to feel unsafe. And I even talked about this to my husband the other day. There's so much of this legacy of like hate <laughs> and power dynamics that you were talking about. That is so normal to the, my existence as a woman of color. I'll give you an example. I remember one of my colleagues was pregnant. A white woman was pregnant. And so this was like, we were in our mid twenties. So she was maybe one of the, like one of my first friends to be pregnant. And so she was talking about how people were so kind to her because she was showing and people would open doors and like help her and give up their seat on the Metro or whatever. And so when I had my daughter, you know, I guess going on four years now, I did not experience any of this kindness. (laughs) Because as a brown woman being pregnant, no one's holding the door. No one's giving up their seat on the Metro. You know, my, I'm probably viewed as some sort of like patronizing statistic of, do we need another black or brown child in this world? You know, so my experience, and I was reminded of this because in quarantine, I haven't been out much, but I, we had to go out to run an errand and I like, you know, I'm starting to be visibly pregnant and no one's really being particularly gracious. So I was just thinking about like how it just shows up in so many nuanced ways that, you know, as me being just solely on the way that I look, I'm just not respected and valued or equitized. And so even in our neighborhood where, you know, for the most part, we're very conscious about where we live. We made a decision to live someplace that we felt our children could run at night and not be threatened with someone thinking that they're an intruder. You know, those are things you have to think about like as a person of color, if I want my kids to grow up in this neighborhood and my son is an athlete, will he be able to run through the streets of our neighborhood without the police being called on him? So those are all things that are so co- so constant in the narrative of what it is to be a person of color, that even in the best case scenario, you're never really removed from that. Yeah. So, and, and yeah. to me, like these stories, mm-hmm. if someone's listening to this right now and you're a white person and what she's saying is okay with you, that it's okay that my friend that I'm talking to right now, as a general rule, does not feel safe and has to think about the safety of her children jogging. This I want to impress. This is why there needs to be a change and a reckoning and a new world where this isn't normalized. This isn't okay. Because to me, if this continues, it's because I let it. Mm. I let it. Mm. If I don't have this conversation, if I don't have this series, it's because I don't care that your kids are safe. It's because I want you to be afraid all of the time. Mm. And I'm okay with that. And this is what keeps me up at night that we are allowing that this is a normal experience for our fellow Americans to be and live in fear because they are not being represented in politics and in business and financially holding power and equity. And and this is why I want people to listen to this. If you didn't listen to the, <laughs> this episode, please start from the beginning because this is exactly what I need people to hear. This is what you need to hear if your skin is white, that this is not okay. It wasn't okay in the past, but now we know, now it's out there that people are being treated poorly because of skin color and it's not okay. And it's never was okay, but now we know better, we do better. When you know better, you do better. And I didn't know that these things were happening because that's how I was raised. I was raised in a all white community. I mean, when I say all white, just wasn't on my radar. Yeah. I mean, so when I heard these stories for the first time, when someone like you tells me, I live in a very progressive area, however, comma, I'm always in fear. I I have to think about, are my kids going to go to this school or that school? And what's their experience going to be like? And how's that going to transform their future? And are they going to be comfortable at that school? I don't think about these things ever, Mm -hmm. ever. Like when my kids go outside, I like just hope they don't get stolen. Sure. Right. I don't think that white people totally grasp that 
white privilege is that they never have to think about this shit. Mm-hmm. Ever. You just send your kid to the best school. They're going to be fine. It's what, you know, they're not, they're going to have an, the teachers are going to speak their language. The testing is going to come over and be fine. Everything's going to be geared towards, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. It's going to yeah. be fine. Yeah. And so just because that's the way it is. And just because I never have to think about these things and you do and people, your friends and people of color do, it's not okay anymore. We're done. I'm, I'm done. I will. I am done. I'm done, done, done. And every time I have a conversation and every time I do an interview, I hope everyone goes back. If you haven't listened to every episode of this podcast, you have to listen to these women. They are smart. You are amazing. You've seen it. You know it. You're raising a family in it. And I think the conversations like this, I'm, I'm hoping that I can be on your Instagram page. Yeah. And, and 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 we can have these kinds of these yeah. kinds of conversations because we need, as you said, to educate new generation of candidates about local and federal offices so that they get out, they start running for office, women start running for office, people of color start running for office, local, federal, state, and get out there because without them running, without more women running, without more people of color running, there will be no change. Because mm-hmm. my people have no intention of giving up power. Sure. Uh, we it must be taken. Yeah. And this is not, I'm not burning down my community. I'm burning down what's been. Right. I'm burning down ideals. I'm burning down the way things have been. It doesn't work. And we can't get there. You know, we can't get there if we are only toe in with this. We got to jump in the pool with our clothes off and scream and say, no more. Yeah. I think that there's, I could see your reaction, you know, to my store for uh, my story, I guess, if you all just kind of share my experience, you know, certainly how, like the definition of power, I don't have a way to solve for that, you know, but there is also, I don't, I think we also talked about this too. Like, I'm sure the other women that you've been speaking to, it's not like, oh, like a victim feeling. Mm-hmm you know, or that I feel like, oh, if, if like white people would just understand, you know, right. that, <laughs> you know, that sort of idea, you know, we're out here living our lives and in these circumstances, which have been generationally normal and to, to an extent have improved for my generation based on what my dad had to go through, based on what my grandparents had to go through. We're still, it creates a strength in community too, right? And it creates, like, I wouldn't want to have grown up any other way, in a way, because there's so much, my unique lens on strength and power and those values that I can pass on to my kids as well, right? And also navigating your true self in these circumstances and not having the world define who you are because you know who you are. Yeah. Isn't going to give you credit for who you are. So in that you're even stronger to own whatever gift you have, like never let anyone discourage. So there's a, there's a level of strength that comes from that. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I can understand people being angry or resistant to having these conversations because it is a dark legacy to carry on your back. And then to have to have a conversation feels unsafe, right? So like, that's why, you know, with after November, I've been kind of really slow and intentional about it because if we're not thoughtful about how we approach these really big issues that have natural and should have emotional reactions, right? Like we should feel these ways. Anytime, if you're a person with a heart, particularly when it comes to stories about children, I mean, I think, you know, I would only want people to engage with the page as you have mentioned, that we can all agree that like children are sacred and that's our North Star by which we're all working towards. If we can't make it, if we can't leave it a little bit better for the kids, then like, what's the point, you know? Right. Yeah. So yeah, it, it does. It does have these emotions. They're big emotions. So you have to be thoughtful about how you do the work and that you're honoring everyone's journey wherever they are and understanding the world around us. And how we each in our unique way can make a difference and move the needle a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, and, and that's thing, that's one thing too. If, you know, if anyone's listening to this, I want you to be clear. I want to be clear is this isn't a conversation about a group of people of color. 
you know, my, my words are really directed towards white people, honestly. Yeah. I, and so I want to be very crystal clear that I'm not saying, oh, these people need help. Uh, you, sure. You've got it covered. You know, you don't need my help. I'm talking about big, big, huge ideas. And as I said yesterday to a podcast the other day, one of the gals is your skin has to look that way for your experience to be exactly what it is, as beautiful as it is, as rich as it is, as happy and wonderful and, you know, all of it that it is, just like my skin needs to look like this at this time in in life. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe a hundred years, we'll be reincarnated and we'll all be beige. (laughs) You know, who knows? But for right now, there is importance in us being able to connect because honestly, you know, one of the gals I'm having on, you know, later on in the month, she, she's very, you know, goes to colorism and the fact that she has straight hair as a black woman and it's long, you know, more like yours. Mm -hmm. And that some people say, well, you can't speak on this because you're half white. You're, You're not black enough. Yeah. And so there's a lot of dynamics that are going around But I just, the way I'm looking at this is if we can get one step closer, just one step. Yeah. Just one step closer to bridging the gap and creating a better world for ourselves and our children of all colors, of all religions. I think that we're definitely, definitely doing the right thing. Yeah, for sure. I just have a funny story to relate to the colorism. Not that colorism is funny, but this just made me chuckle. So my dad... He lives in Harlem and our family has a super fascinating history, which I wasn't really connected to as a child, but I have like, as an adult kind of sought it out. So we have some like radicals in our family. I wouldn't say my dad was a radical, but he's in a character. So we were talking about Kamala and he was like, well, you know, she's not really black. Like, she's just like a woman. I was like, dad, so you don't think I'm a black woman? (laughs) And so he's like, well, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't mean, (laughs) and I was like, dad, Kamala went to Howard. She pledged Alpha Chapter, AKA, I would never come to Kamala's face and challenge whether or not she defines herself as a black woman. If you want to fight that fight, you go ahead and have that. But like, you know, it's probably, so, I mean, you know, I I can understand because my dad, you know, certainly is on that vein of like, you know, what's black enough, what's not black enough. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I tread the line, try, try to tread it as authentically as possible. You know, like my passions are my passions. I, particularly with after November, I became hyper-focused. I had, I had felt like this in, when I worked in politics too, and just kind of the legacy of, or the lack thereof of black statewide office holders, both at the state and the federal level. The numbers are really just like appalling in terms of the amount of black senators that we've had in the history of the country. And I think there's only been four governors ever who have been black in the U S. Wow. So kind of like digging into these, like, why is that right? Like what, what happens at these statewide offices, either in the Senate or um, in gubernatorial seats that there's such a vested interest to not have people of color in these seats. Like, like if we can look at that then maybe we can peel that back a little bit. So yeah, I, I try to th- show up as authentically as possible and speak to only my experience as someone who identifies as a black woman who also is mixed and Latina. Yeah, so it's a comp- it's complicated. Colors are complicated. It's steeped in a lot of history, right? Yeah, it's one of those things that like no one's really wrong, <laughs> you know. But yes, as speaking to after November and increasing engagement, I think myself included, all of us could really handle a little bit more education in the topic of what political involvement looks like, right? Like, I know there are so many great organizations that encourage women to run, that support women candidates, both at the local and federal level, that encourage people of color to run at the local and federal level. I think what is missing is us really understanding what these different jobs do. Like, what does your mayor actually do? What does your city council actually do? What does the school board actually do? What does your congressperson do? Like really understanding what these roles are so that if it is in your heart that you feel like you want to be a public servant, which is also, I think, what should be the new definition, <laughs> like we should stop using politician and it's a it's a election into public servitude. Yeah. Like that's what you are, you're a public servant. This, this idea of a politician 
I just feel like it's such a charged word and politicians themselves have lost what it is to be a public servant. Servant, yeah. And so if that's something that it's almost like a spiritual calling, like if that's what you feel like you're called to do to serve others, then understanding like based on what your passions are, what should I be running for office? Because I think there's often like when I had done some political consulting, a lot of really well-intentioned people think like, I'm going to run for Congress. Like, okay, this is low hanging fruit. My congressperson, you know, maybe has been in office for a really long time or they, they spend most of their time in DC. They're disconnected from the community, whatever the case may be. And so I'll be able to help in Congress. Well, navigating actual ch- legislative change in Congress is a very unique skill set. So perhaps if what's calling you to action is your kids' schools, then the school board would, would be a better place for you to, to run for office. So I think that the dynamics of like where we engage and how we engage, there's, a I, I think, a just a global education that we could all stand to have around what these different rules are so that when we're running, we have a greater chance of success. Yeah. And two, once we serve, that's a, the other thing. Once you're in office, you have to be prepared that perhaps people don't want to keep you in office. So you need to best be armed to be in a job that you will be successful in so that you can fight off all the energy around you that has no investment in keeping a non-white man <laughs> serving in their seat. So those those kind of nuanced things. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it takes a brain surgeon to like educate and inform people, right? Yeah. Set them up for success. I just don't think that there's been a lot of energy put in that space. So that's what the, the off season. Exactly. Exactly. We just want to train people up in the off season. We got to train them up in the off season. Well, I so appreciate you being here and being so candid and tolerating me and my insanity. And I really, really appreciate you. And I'm following you on Instagram at underscore after November, but I really, really appreciate you being here. Milagros Brown. Thank you. I just adore you and I look forward to a long friendship and connecting with you. Maybe, you know, when that baby comes, we can talk what it's like to have two kids on my parenting series, right? And you'll be a new mom. Uh, Congratulations on such a beautiful family and getting this off the ground. It's no simple feat to be dealing with politics and motherhood and being a wife and a member of a community and all this good stuff and a daughter (laughs) and all that good stuff. So thank you again so much for being here. I really am blessed to have you in my space. And I hope everyone listens to all the episodes in this series because these women are truly amazing. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Meredith. This was amazing. Awesome. Thanks for listening. If you would like to connect on a more personal level, head over to MeredithWillets.com we're on Instagram at Meredith with a Y for behind the scene footage and outtakes. Please subscribe and come back each week for more Meredith with a Y. Thanks again for listening. Cheers. Cheers.